I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In this episode of The Rising Podcast, music curator and radio DJ Woody McDonald hosts a conversation between two iconic Australian drummers, Tony Buck from The Necks and Jim White from The Dirty Three. How did you both get into drumming? You know, I remember playing on my mum's ironing board because it had a this sort of metal grid grill thing under it, and it sounds sort of sounded like a snare drum. So I'd play along with records. Oh yeah, I was playing the chairs. Yeah, on the floor. <laughs> sure, everyone loved it in the house. You, you kind of draw on that a lot when you're a little kid, and then people tend to forget it. But I think it's still there. Mm. You can still find some really interesting things in the kitchen. When we we're speaking about the music program. I made up a narrative about both the formation of both groups, 33, one of your first groups, and the next one of your first groups. My um, urban myth was that you started as a restaurant band and the 33, and that the next started as a, uh, a band that never intended to play live, but maybe you could tell me the real story. We started um, 33. There's a pub in Victoria Street, Richmond, and the guy... Noel, he owned a few pubs around Melbourne and Warren knew him from a share house of some kind or something and he needed a band so we formed So it was a restaurant group initially as a, as a Bar band of, I guess Yeah <laughs> To play a sort of uh, backing music or you f- were you in the foreground and, and it was, Well there's only three people there the first night so wouldn't say it was foreground or background <laughs> The three of us and three friends and it was 60 bucks and the or we could drink. <laughs> yeah. And was it improvised the first night or did you write material? No, we had a few. We went round to Warren's house. We just went through a few small ideas um, and then played, went and played. And then come street and uh, took a photo. He had a vac- vacant lot next door, so we drove all our cars up there. And Tony, you had more of a conservatorium background before um, the next at least, but a, but a bit of independent underground happening as well? Yeah, well, I mean, conservatorium background, um, it was something that I did instead of finishing school. I went to the con as something to do, I guess, to meet like-minded people. <clears throat> but um, you know, at the same time playing in rock bands and this and that around the place. Um, and I guess the next formed, the three of us were playing in lots of groups together, overlapping kind of lineups and different things. And um, I think we decided we wanted to play in a certain way that wasn't being satisfied in these other situations we found ourselves in, even though they, those were pretty varied anyway. But, um, yeah, we just had this other way that we wanted to play and we decided to get together a couple of times a week and, um, and just play for ourselves, really, which we did 
pretty rigorously for about six months before someone that had heard about our little get-togethers sort of suggested we share it with people. Yeah, and then we did our first concert and people seemed to like it and it went from there. Did you play different um, material every night, every time? Well, we don't, we've never had any material except the material we sort of remember from, you know, having played together a lot. But we've never sort of written anything or um, no pen to paper or let's remember this or anything like that. It's always just walking out and playing. So when, when you make the albums and it says like a name of a song, you never go back and go like play that song? No, never. No, that makes sense. And Tony, you were saying you sort of had the idea bubbling away or there was some desire for the three of you to play together. What was connecting, if you can think that far back? All three of us started getting interested in... Um, other ways of playing, like, and I guess the references we might talk about minimalism or um, like f- improvising freely. But then I don't, I think we wanted to do things that it wasn't really like a free jazz thing where everyone's sort of soloing at once. It was more like a ensemble sort of sound and letting the music take its time. So I guess the references we would have had would have been things like African music and Indian classical music and gamelan and maybe reggae and like music that sort of trancey music from, I guess in the early days we played kind of in a traditional way like a rhythm section but uh, we weren't really interested in soloists more like the band playing equally but they're not like all soloing like maybe no one soloing at all so we had this kind of um, self-imposed restrictions I guess even though we were playing we could play whatever we wanted no one was telling us what to do we wouldn't even talk to each other about what we might bring to a piece of music um, except through the initial conversation referencing you know minimalism maybe Steve Reich and James Brown and so and we I think we were also maybe because of all the bands we've been playing in were pretty high energy and pretty loud and noisy and um, demonstrative in the, the sort of kind of way of playing and I think we wanted to do something really different to that so the band when the band started we played very very soft all the time I saw your show at the tote it was really amazing and oh, yeah. then I saw you got next at the corner and that was like it was also fantastic and that was very that seemed like a rock audience right like when everyone's sitting on the floor everyone's sitting on the floor and stuff but I think Tony was explaining maybe you're a bit more expressionist and the necks are a little bit more minimalist in the dirty three at least yeah well I, I have this idea that the, the dirty three seem to me to be so yeah sort of you have these these sort of songs or a shell of an idea and then while you're playing it live it sort of opens up and it becomes this sort of expressionistic kind of opening up of the music um, from these ideas of songs yeah and the next we start with nothing so it's all totally open and then throughout the performance we kind of hone down onto focus on these very small ideas and with this sort of self-imposed kind of limits and so we kind of like where the dirty three open up we kind of close down into a more introspective thing well, yeah maybe we start with we, maybe we start with repetition and then open up yeah mm. yeah but i can see why people i mean it's instrumental music so i can see why people do occasionally um you know put these bands together in a kind of some sort of idea in their heads. Maybe that the 
two sides of the same coin, two different sides of the same coin, whatever the expression is. Yeah. How did the names come about for both groups? I think Mick had... Um, That's a good question. I think Mick had a, a couple of mates he used to go out drinking with and they called themselves Dirty Three. And we had the photo. We needed the, we had the photo. We had the show and then we had the band photo and we needed the name, you know, that day. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Because we, we formed with, not the, with the idea of not really playing, so it didn't matter if we had a name or not, but we decided to have a name. And I remember Lloyd rang Chris and said, I've got a name. And before Lloyd could get it out, Chris said, yes, yeah, so do I, the next. And <laughs> Lloyd went, oh, okay. And to this day, no matter how many times we get asked that question and, um, you know, we look to Chris to find out where it came from, he doesn't really have a, an explanation. So I have a question for Jim. Did the Dirty Three ever feel like, or, I mean, the whole – joke or I guess the the question of getting a singer like oh what you guys need is a chick singer or something yeah did that ever seriously come up I mean people used to say it to us people people said it to us but it never came up for us no I mean we were always very clear you know because also there was an idea floated around that we should make a record early on with singers you know what I mean but you know it was clearly a terrible idea to me and, and to the other members of the band um but it was, yeah, you know, like well, well-known singers around, and you know, that were would have been happy to contribute, you know, which is nice. But it, yeah, it would have been. So yes, yes and no. It was thrown around, but it was never taken seriously. Yeah, I mean, there's something very liberating about having. I, I always imagine having a singer, somebody like nails this thing down to something yeah. else. And the the openness of t- instrumental music is well. Also, I always remember the day um, Warren and I we were playing at that place, the Lounge, in this other band, and we'd just been around a mix mm-hmm. the day before, and we'd, or you know, in the days earlier, making a recording, and Warren had dropped in on the way to soundcheck and got the cassette, you know, that Mick had put, mixed, yeah. and you know, he he had this EH, and you know, he's had the window down and the stereo up, and it's like first time I'd heard. 33 on tape and you know it sounded there's so much room without the vocals there's so much sonic room Whatever room sound, there's there's a room, you know. So the instruments sound fantastic, but I mean, there's also yeah, there'll be just a lot less room for everything, I think. But yeah, I mean, certainly if there was a singer, yeah, Warren wouldn't be. None of us would be playing in the same way, I don't think. Yeah, exactly. And then and for a listener, there's so much more open space to interpret it how you feel. Like you, the music, you respond to the music in a very personal way. Yeah. And as soon as you've got a singer in words, it nails down what the song's about or what you're supposed to be feeling. It sort of dictates a whole lot of stuff 
that instrumental music just leaves open, which I think is a great thing. You're both at home in um, concert halls. You've played your fair share of fancy environments, but I feel like the next long-term residency at, say, the Corner Hotel in Melbourne and the Dirty Three have a similar appreciation for grotty punk rock (laughs) pubs, really, or rock and roll pubs. But you're playing the sort of music that, um, yeah, is a bit gentler at times. And um, do you have an environment, or have you found those experiences, say, transitioning from sticky carpets to concert halls? The sound of the room has such a big effect. Totally, yeah. And then the re- the rest of the stuff is other psychological stuff, but that, you know how the and how the audience is how you're feeling the audience and things like that. But the actual sounds of the room just hugely important. Huge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for us too, I think we've also always played in so many different sorts of places. And that's something because we don't, we walk on stage without any planned idea of what we're going to do. The sort of venue does really kind of inform what happens afterwards. It's also, it's not really a self-conscious thing. You know, we, if we play at the corner, I do think we play incredibly differently than if we're playing in some sort of cathedral somewhere in the middle of France <laughs> or at the concert hall or the opera house or something, but you don't walk on stage and think, oh, this is what we're doing and we, it has to be different or right. it has to... But it, it, it just does, like, from the first sound you make, there's a whole different kind of... I guess it's like acoustic feedback thing happens where the, the first sound just sounds different and presents a different space in which to, to do... let this music kind of unfold. So, yeah, it's a constant... Uh, influence on what goes on. And you have to huddle which is on great. those big stages sometimes with the big rooms. You have to squash up together, try and get the sound <laughs> so you can take and hear what's going on, you know, and feel what's going on more. I remember the first band I ever joined, the first rock band, that like proper band touring, which was actually that band Airs Rock. Which you was in Airs Rock? Yeah. <laughs> I know by the time. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about Airs Rock and classic rock in the 80s, though, and, and it is a bit technical, yes. But um, the landscape of uh, where both groups came up in. I know you, you'd had a lot of punk rock activity. Tony, you'd had jazz and all sorts of things and, and playing it in a classic rock band. But it's still, by the time both groups came around, it still must you still must have been a bit uh, odd in a way. I think that was the word you used to describe Tony. You know, both bands still in the, in the spectrum of, you know, whether oh, it's Melbourne pub rock or it's, you know, Sydney jazz or, or whatever, both bands sort of remain quite odd. 
No, I mean, there have been over the years odd responses to the next. But not really any more in the early days than later. Although I, mean, I guess if people go and see the band now, they know what to, they're going to see. Right. But there have been a few weird things. Like, I mean, there was one gig we... Um, all three of us were actually... It's a strange gig. We were playing in Stephen Cummings' band. And, um, the, and But the three of us just as his backing band sort of thing. And then, but we made a, we did an opening set as the next to this crowd that would go and see a Stephen Cummings kind of gig. And I remember someone yelling out sort of halfway through it, fucking medical students or something. I don't know, that's <laughs> their response to And it was probably a really weird setting for us to do anyway. I mean, I don't know why we, but you know, that was one response. And I mean, and we did a gig I don't know, it was probably 10 years ago now in somewhere in Brighton, I think in England. And somebody, some guy, you know, sat through the whole sort of hour long first set. And then as soon as it was finished, he sort of clambered to the front yelling, this isn't music, this is fucking shit. What are you, this is a music festival, why are you here? And, you know, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't, it's whatever, you know. There was also once a gig, we played in Sydney in a little pub. And I think it was near, some sort of um, police station or something because the room seemed to be full of um, detectives and off-duty policemen and uh, we kind of just started the set and played and I, th- I guess we weren't looking around we had our eyes closed whatever and opening them up halfway through the room was full but totally with totally different people so we basically cleared the room of these policemen <laughs> and ended up with a totally different audience so that was an interesting response from the constabulary. <laughs> I mean, you have to get yourself into d- different situations, right? I mean, to yeah. find the audience. Like, I, I always thought Dirty Three, you know, if we got ourselves, it was very hard to get shows early on, but it was like, apart from, I mean, we always, in Melbourne, we did, we did once we had the residencies and then we would go around and it was always fine, but it's like interstate. And we would piggyback on other shows that Warren and I were doing or whatever. But I remember when we went to Sydney, they, we played at the first show there and they, they just said, well, I will make sure you never play in Sydney ever again. You know, you're, so it was a, up on Taylor Square there. They were just outraged, you know, that you could call that music. But I, was, but I always thought if we get in front of people, it will go well. And, you know, it did. Not, just not, not always. Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> well, those people running it, whatever, they didn't. I mean, these, these, con- these different contexts are fantastic to find yourself in. But I guess the, the danger is you can always risk really disappointing people a lot. But... You know, usually, yeah, like you say, it usually goes really well once you get, you can do it, and people do get it. Um, it's funny with the next. I often feel this if when we played in audiences that we I know have never heard us before. You know, they, they, it starts off and everyone's kind of open to what's going to happen, and then in the five minute mark where not a lot has happened, you feel the audience get a bit sort of fidgety, and then you can almost it's almost a palpable feeling in the hall at about 10 minutes where they realise, well, actually, maybe this is what it is. Right. And people just relax into it and you kind of, then you know you've got them. But uh, there's, between the five-minute and 10-minute mark sometimes at a gig for us, you feel this sort of ill ease in the audience of, like, what the, actually, what are we listening to? <laughs> expectations can be um, thwarted somewhat, let's say. So then I guess they... People learn to listen without expectation, which is great. Audiences might be very different now than the when, like, not just our audiences, individual audiences, but audiences might be totally different now than when we first started, right? 
like the yeah, nature of the sure. audience, like the nature of audiences in general. Like people seem much, people are much more open, aren't they now? Yep. I think people are more open, but they also they can have a better idea of what they're getting into. These hard divisions of what style and what tribe the music is supposed to relate to have broken down a lot. Yeah, so I think people are more open. Yeah, and what's a song? What's a song? And what's music and stuff? Yeah, for sure. Maybe there aren't. What's a band? I don't know if it's a thing to do with the internet and the democratization of music, but maybe people aren't being dictated to about what this thing is and what it means and you know like a a band would form with a certain image and be pushed by a record company with a certain like belonging to a certain scene and that doesn't happen so much anymore I guess but maybe the, maybe how pop music is so radical you know the first people who really got into the next with um, there was one guy Sandro in Bern in Switzerland who was really into noise music and um industrial music and he booked Peril this group of mine a few times and he was the first person that really got it and uh, and it, that was totally from the, the sort of squat scene in Switzerland at the time and uh, and he would make comparisons strangely like with the Necks and Godflesh and bands like that I don't know why he found these connections but suddenly we had a sort of touring circuit in this scene that I associated with sort of squat rock and all that sort of thing and um, it took a, quite a long time for uh, the scene that we were involved with in Australia which I suppose was more people who were interested in the, the jazz scene and the fact that we improvised was an interesting thing to them but that took a long time to get happening in Europe I think both groups keep finding new audience and odd, odd little pockets of music fans over the years it's been something I've noticed at the gigs it's always you know, newer types of younger people there, from older people experiencing it for the first time. It's never, it's not particularly linear followings, I wouldn't say, or genre followings. Yeah, for us, I think it opens up. Um, over the years, it's slowly opened up to new scenes that, um, like in, in Europe, it's very different to how it went in Australia. But then now, you know, like when, when we, we did a tour in Australia, or I don't know how many gigs it ended up being, not so many, but opening for Swans, which was a lot of people would think that kind of knew of the next, but knew Swans were like, this is ridiculous, why would a jazz band from Sydney open, be opening for Swans? Like, bleh. But the musical connections are fairly obvious if you look a little deeper than the surface. And so that opened us up to a whole group of people that would maybe not have come across us before. And the same thing collaborating with Brian Eno and at Vivid in, at the Opera House in Sydney. That opened us up to a whole group of people. You know, I did. I did um, little. I didn't do it. I, I didn't do the homework I planned to do for this uh, podcast. 
But I did. <laughs> but I did. I did this morning read an interview with you, and oh, yeah? you said it was a really great interview actually. And、um, you said that you felt, which surprised me, that you felt like you were, you know. Not normal or something in the drumming world that you felt like you didn't play right. You know what I mean? I guess you're the same. Like we we're kind of quite into the sort of textural timbral way of playing a drum kit and and this whole way that the drummers are these days. You know, like these drum heads that just sound like nothing. Yeah. The sort of this way of playing really tight and. It just sounds. It's just something that I'm not really interested in, in, in anymore. Or but, I don't know. But even when we was. started, it was. It was Like it wasn't. It was kind of. It wasn't really in vogue then either, was it? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, drums didn't sound like that. I mean, even the the drummers, the first sort of. I mean, like Mark Kennedy, or、um, even getting back into. Even when I was getting into the the like, I really want to be a drummer, drummer, and like play this instrument the best I can, sort of thing. And you listen to who was really hip and happening then. It's like Billy Cobham or、yeah. whatever the the real drummers drummers were. Like they didn't sound like this. Shitty two-dimensional sound, and this, you know, the way the the bass drums sound these days. And I mean, I'm just really, it just, it sounds really like two-dimensional to me now. Yet, I mean, this is within the whole the industry of the drumming industry. Yeah, yeah, with the with the heads and stuff. And yeah, yeah. and the and the and also and, then, and the the workshops by these great drummers, whoever they、yeah. are these days. And it's just I don't hear any personality or any options for sound. You know? Right. So maybe that's. One thing about feeling a bit out of the the loop. So, you, are you a you, you're a kit player, right? You're always a kit player. Yeah, you yeah. like that, right? Yeah, I mean, I did a gig once recently. Oh, not recently, but somebody and someone said the way I was playing sounded like I sound like a percussionist, and I should just play percussion. But <laughs> it's really important that it's、uh, that it's a drum kit. Yeah, yeah. It seems to be the. It's almost like the, this is my the the office, the workstation. You know? Yeah, I, even if you change it, it's like that's com- that's coming from. Yeah, totally. See, I, I, I love that. I, I just I was just curious to ask because you know I love the formality of the drum kit, and、um, yeah, you know, and it's you know it's actually very quite modern.、Mm. Sometimes, do you regard yourself as a late a late like playing a twentieth century instrument, like a late practitioner? Because <laughs> it's you know, well, it's had its day. Well, the, yeah, the drum kit. I mean, it's a. I, I find it interesting because it's yeah, it's a, like a really great workstation.、Mm. It's got these resonating surfaces that you can use for anything, but it's got this history of yeah, the twentieth century development of the yeah. It's about a hundred and about a hundred hundred and ten years old or something now. This stage, yeah, and、um, it's also at one in one sense, it's one instrument. It's an in, the drum kit is an instrument, but at the same time, it's also a collection of right. Lots of different instruments, and I think the psychology of how you think about it, approach it while you're playing it, can really help、um, get an idea of what you're doing with it. Like, in, and in some ways, it's very orchestral. Like, you have the lowest sound in the band and the highest sounds in the band,、yeah. and everything in between. And so、But、you can make up rules, and you can play it like、kit. you have. You、what? make up rules inside the inside、yeah. your, your, your formal set. Yeah, it's also you're playing within the limitations that it, it sets, and then also it sort of inspires to play outside of that, you know, expectation as well. I think. Yeah. You know, and and also with the added 
sort of other percussion instruments and little cymbals and shit you throw around on a drum kit. It's quite a, a vast instrument, really, isn't it? Like, it's almost like a music concrete machine. You can almost sort of play anything. And I guess drummers in the history of the drum kit, they were also the sound effect makers, you know, right. in the old big bands and stuff. So that's still there, I think. And yeah, I think it does, with the history and then the limitation and then the way to overcome the limitations or how the problem solving can really be inspiring. You haven't met Lars from Metallica. I, lo- I, I love I, I love him. Yeah. I love him because that album I love that album he made with Lou Reed. Yeah, it's a catchy drum, album. The, drum, the drumming's so good on it. I really there's that Metallica record. What's it called? Where apparently like it was universally panned because the, especially because of the drum sound, Sin, something or other. Sin anger. Sin anger or something. Ah. And and the drum sound was fantastic. Like the snare. Maybe I was getting back to that thing of talking about bad like this plastic two-dimensional drum sound these days and that's what's on most rock records especially these big corporate things corporate rock whatever you call it but that record had this sort of the snare drum had a real tone to it and sort of oh yeah yeah and i really liked it yeah i don't know the metallica stuff but the lulu album with that metallica did with lou reed was was panned by everyone and put it on it's just fantastic and the drums the drums are so they're so great Thanks, Lars. <laughs> the Rising Podcast is created by Litmus Media on the land of the Bunwurrung and Wurundjeri people. It's produced by me, Mahmoud Fazal. The assistant producer is Daniel Stewart, and the editor is Eugene Yang. You can listen at litmus.media or wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.